Hallelujah. The English language is weird because another phrase, except we don't use it like that, but we would say that we're full of all, but the problem is using that word is it's awful. That's the word, but it literally means full of all. And so when, you, when you've heard someone say, you know, we usually use that as a derogatory term. You know, they're an awful, and then you can put whatever you want to after that. But in reality, what it means is that it's staggering what God can do. Hallelujah. The presence of God is here, and I can feel his presence. And I want to I wanna just kind of wrap up today. Um, and, and wrap up our shoes for Christ and all of this, I want to just kind of bring it all into perspective. And uh, I, this has been a year of, of financial miracles and financial touches, and, and you, can't, you can't escape that. There, there's no way around that. I, I, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my own family. I've talked to you and and you've expressed just simple things, and it just kind of, wow, what God can do. I like the economy of God. You can be seated. You, it was Brother Justin, Brother Lowe, that may, used that word, and, and I was going to use it in my sermon tonight, the economy of God. Um, it, it just works. It's not weird math. It's not twisted math. It's just supernatural math. That God can take nothing and make something. That God can take three loaves and two fishes, five loaves and two fishes, and he can feed 10,000 plus people. That's what God can do. And God is able to take the, what we give and he expands it. I, I was going to save this to the end of my sermon, but I am so just absolutely enthralled. Last night... Uh, I was cleaning the baptistry and draining it and kind of just making sure everything was was ready for a baptistry. We usually have it filled, and it was, but I said, you know what, I want it just a good time. So last night I was here, and it t- takes a long time to fill that baptistry, and there's a, a couple of nicks, and just in the in the year, this baptistry's I assume, uh, 30-something years old and starting to show its age, and so I'm working on it, and I... Uh, it's about 10.30 at night, and I, I got on Facebook, and I, I Facebooked my cousin. His name is Joel Mitchell. It's my uh, wife's, or my mother's, rather, my mother's uh, brother's son. And I, I, I did it. He and his dad, all their life, they have been involved in fiberglass repair, and they've, they've you know, they can take your, your bathtub, and they can change the color of it. You know, they've done all that. And so I, I called him, and I was half-joking. I said, man, bro, I said, I'm going to have to have you come and preach for me so you can fix this baptistry and make it look nice and pretty and change the color of it. And, uh, you know, we got on that, and he wanted pictures, and I was sending it, and back and forth we were going. And then I, I, I asked him, I said, hey, I, I heard something about your church. Give me a little bit more about it. And I want to tell you what God's economy does. And I, I hope somewhere in the midst of all of this today, somebody's faith would be would be just... Let it rise. If you're here today and, 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 and the economy that you're living in, whatever that might be, it could be a financial economy. It could be an economy of grief. It could be the economy of depression. Whatever that you're operating in, I want to just hopefully somewhere in the midst of all of this let you know that God can do more with what you would give him than you could ever do if you had all of the answers in the world. 
In 2005, Joel and his family moved to Arab, Alabama to become uh, uh, kind of a, a full-time pastor. There was another pastor there, and they co-pastored for a while. Arab is very close to the Huntsville, Alabama area. If you know anything about that corridor, that is where one of the, the, the headquarters of NASA is. You don't think about that, but in Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama, it's very much NASA. As we would say here, you know, one of the great uh, employers around here is, is Boeing or MasterCard or uh, uh, GM. They would say in Huntsville and Arab that, that, that it's NASA and it's, it's those things. When they became pastor, one of the first tasks that he had was to was to re uh, re get, re get the loan, if you will. It it was up for renewal, and they wanted to refinance their current church loan, and so. They found a Christian credit union that was able to do so and, and it began to allow them much like, like this church has been a recipient of. It allowed them to um, expand their facilities. Everything was great from 2005 on, on up till about uh, uh, 2010. God began to move. I'm connected to him. I talked to him and, and it was Holy Ghost. It was outpouring of his spirit. It was growth. They had reached about 200 people. Every ministry in the church was flourishing and growing and, and expanding. They were ready to, to add a balcony that would add another 130 seats in that area. Everything was going great. There were people each week converted and baptized in Jesus' name and everything was good. Their staff had begun to grow and it was exciting. But as you know, around 2008, 2010, the economy began to suffer a great crisis. And especially there, economies that were, were, were built around uh, uh, construction, and some of you are in construction, you would know this, uh, economy that was built around technologies began to suffer. Overnight it seemed that things happened. The credit crisis was in full swing. In fact, he, he told me that in about uh, two years, Actually, 18 months, they lost because people had lost their jobs and were having to relocate and move out and just try to make ends meet. They lost half of their congregation to relocations and to the crisis of the economy. They lost their jobs. They lost their, lost their businesses. Many in the church were, were business owners of their own, and they began to turn up. And They closed their church daycare. They closed their church school. They did everything they could to stay Afloat, it was a tragic turn of events. In the middle of all that, the founding pastor that acted, if you will, as the bishop, he was a, a higher up in NASA. He had lost his job there, and finally he received a transfer to Washington, D.C. to be in NASA there, and he accepted it. But it, it, it sent shockwaves to that, that church and that community. They were losing the founding pastor, and even though Joel was their pastor, it still hurt. They had never missed a mortgage payment. But economy was hurting. I know Joel and his family, they personally sacrificed so that they could keep making it. Those of you that were part of the lighthouse before my wife and I became pastor, you understand that. You know that, what it was like to say no matter what, we're going to make sure we take care of our debts. And they did that. And, and it was going, but to be honest, even though it was the courageous efforts of the people and the grace of God, the economy said, and the, and the P&L reports, and the bank said, this cannot be continued. And so because of that, in the fall of 2012, the credit union found a loophole to foreclose on that church building, even though they had never lost a payment. And I asked if Brother Joel would allow me to say this. He said it was okay. They asked the church to pay the loan 
some $800,000 or $700,000. They had to pay that loan in full in 30 days or they were going to be foreclosed on. Can you imagine that pastor? Can you imagine that, that what he was going through, what that church was going through, and all of the struggle? There's no way they could do it. They had to just let it go, and so they were going. Joel hit his face. He began to pray, and, 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 and Brother Mitchell, he, he, he said the Lord told him in all of this, he said, don't worry, I got this. Yeah, right. Do you see we've lost people? Do you see the finances are down? Do you see that, that our building is getting foreclosed? Do you see that our town is turned upside down? The crisis in God, how do you have this, he said. As it went and they foreclosed on the church and, you know, they gave them so long to get out of the church, God told Brother Mitchell, Brother Joel Mitchell, he said, I want you to call the bank and ask them to lease you the building for $1,000 a month. Their mortgage was $5,000. He called the bank. He said, uh, we'd like to lease your building for $1,000. And the bank laughed at him. And he went back. He was discouraged. He began to pray. And he told me. He said, God told me again. He said, call him back. Tell him you have $1,000 a month that you can pay and you want to lease your church. It's the church they had already built on. So he called them back. It's a two-story, 30,000 square foot building, three times the size of this building. And he called them back and he said, he, he said I, I've got 1,000. And the, the, they, they said, there's no way. In fact, all we would do, we would accept $3,500 a month for you to lease the church. He got off the phone. He hit his knees. He began to pray. A few days later, she called back. The banker called back and said, you know what? We thought about your circumstances, and, and we understand the, the, the crisis you're in. We'll go down to $2,500 a month, and you can lease your building. That's at least half of what they were paying. Joel was almost ready to do it. And God said, no, tell her you'll do $1,000 a month. They called back. The bank called back and said, we've really thought about it. Brother Mitchell will do it $1,500. And Joel said, I was ready to go. Okay, God, I can do this. And God said, no, no. I said $1,000. He went on to say, he said, ma'am, I only have $1,000 a month to lease it. The lady laughed at him. She said, please, go back, ask your supervisors. He went and asked the supervisors. She came back. For 10 seconds, he said, they were speechless until finally she said, we have the authorization to lease you the building for $1,000 a month. Oh, that's not the end of the story. That was a huge miracle. They didn't have to move. But the bank came and put a for sale sign in front of the church. Now, they were able to stay there. They were saving $4,000 a month in, in costs and insurance. But, but still, they knew it was a temporary moment. And so they were there. God was working things out. And within a month, the credit union came and they assessed the property. They appraised the building and they listed the church for $1 million dollars. Their loan, their, their a previous loan was $700,000, but they, leased, they, they listed it for almost a million dollars. Now, brother, brother Ron, you'll appreciate this. Within four months of them becoming the leasee 
of the building, one of their eight air conditioner units went out. Guess what you do when you rent? You call the landlord. Hey, one of your air conditioners went out. They said, okay, well, and then Joel goes, and you know what? I know a company that would, that would fix it. It happened to be a man in his church that owned his own business. He was hurting for work. The economy was bad, and the bank said, well, get him out there and let him fix it. And so the bank paid to put a new air conditioner on and paid one of the men in the church to do it. You know, that's how God works. Then a little bit later, two more, a few more months went by. Two more units decided to quit. He called up the bank. Hey, two more of your air conditioners quit. They said, get that same company. The same company came. Man in the church fixed it. And then a little bit later, the bank came in and said, you know what? We want to make sure that we can uh, sell this building. And so we're going to upgrade the kitchen and the security system so we can sell this building for more. It was more than $10,000 worth of upgrades that the bank did. The gutters began to leak shortly after it, began to flood the building. He called the bank and said, hey, your gutters are leaking. And so they said, all right, what do you think we should do? He goes, well, you know what? I know a gutter company, man in his church. They came out and they fixed the gutters. You think that would be okay? And then a, a huge winter storm came. The steeple began to leak. It leaked so bad they came in one day and all the sheetrock in the foyer had fallen. They came out, another man in the church, another company in the church, another business owner got up there and they fixed it. They paid that man in the church to complete, completely renovate and repaint the foyer. There was enough paint left over to paint the hallways. God was allowing the new owner of the church to pay for all the upgrades and the maintenance issues while the membership of New Life kept growing. And meanwhile, they were saving $4,000 a month. In the spring of this year, remember that was 2012 that all of that kind of hit. In the spring of this year, more than three years after the foreclosure, they had been leasing that building for three years. They received a call that the price of the building had dropped from a million dollars to 475000 and there was another church interested in purchasing it. The for sale sign that was out there on the side was, was, was kind of, I mean, it was there for three years. You passed by it. They'd forgotten about it, but now it starts to perk back up. And Brother Mitchell began to wonder, is everything we've done going to be in naught? No one had shown any interest in building it, in buying it, rather. Brother Mitchell called the United Pentecostal Church Loan Fund. He told them, he said, we might have an opportunity to buy this property. Remember that when they got foreclosed on, they had never missed a payment. But when they foreclosed on, their note was $700,000. They went to the bank just in the last couple of months. And they said, we'll give you $345,000 for this building that appraised for $1.2 million. And in one stroke, they signed what they had offered. And God erased approximately $350,000 worth of mortgage through that deal. In addition, the bank had lost $400 a month in leasing it for over the last three and a half years. That's another $150,000. And they had also paid over $50,000 in upgrades and all of those businesses were working in the church that got the work. What Joel wanted to say 
was that in all of that, God did all of that to save them $550,000. And they never, even though it was foreclosed, they never lost the building. It was theirs always. God just allowed someone else to own the mortgage. God allowed someone else to pay the bills. God allowed somebody else to pay the maintenance issues. I'm telling you, that's what God's economy does. I don't know who exactly I'm talking to right now, but as I begin to talk to him, I knew what we were going to do today in church. I knew what I wanted to preach about, that you can't outgive God. That was the sermon title. I wanted to go when he began to tell me that. In fact, I think it was this morning, because I think they only have church on Sunday mornings right now. But what they did today, today, is they walked outside and they get, got that big old for sale sign that had been out there and they paraded it through their church and Pastor Joel Mitchell preached and these signs shall follow them that believe. You say, Pastor, why are you telling about something that happened in Arab, Alabama because God's economy works the same here in, in O'Fallon, Missouri as it does in Arab, Alabama? That God's economy is such that when the children of Israel were in great captivity and they were wondering how is it ever going to happen and they had been in captivity, the, the, the temple, the tabernacle and everything they owned had been destroyed. And they sat there. But God kept promising. He kept promising Ezra. He kept promising Nehemiah. He kept promising those prophets that I'm going to bring you back to a place that's been desecrated by the enemy. And I know that the locusts and the canker worms and the palmer worms have ate it down. And yeah, it's your own fault and that this captivity is a portion of your sin. He said, but I'm going to tell you God's economy is better than you can ever imagine. So it was that the king, Ezra, went, you can read it in the book of Ezra, you can read it in the book of Nehemiah and the, and the corresponding chronicles and the, and, the, and, the, and the stories of the kings. There's a place where it says that, that, that Cyrus, the king, Cyrus decreed, he wrote out, he said, tell you what, Nehemiah, I want you and a remnant of the people, I want you to go back to the... Uh, to, to, to Jerusalem I want you to rebuild the church of God ne Nehemiah's mind and Ezra's mind they would have said how can we do that if you will we've been in bondage not quite slaves but we certainly haven't had our freedoms how are we ever going to go back and rebuild Solomon's temple how is it ever going to happen and Cyrus said well here's what I'm going to do he wrote out a script. In our day and age, it'd be a credit card. He, he said, here's my platinum, my platinum discover. There's no spending limit on it. If you need cedar trees from Lebanon, take this letter to them and say Cyrus is paying for it. And then if you need, if you need gold from over there, tell them Cyrus is taking care of it. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, built the temple, or at least paid for it. I don't think he quite understood what was happening, but that was God's economy. That's why God can say what the locusts and the palmer worms and the canker worms have eaten, I will restore. 
my God, somebody here, I know you've faced it. I know you've lost. I know you've sacrificed. I know you've suffered. I know you've tried everything you know to do. And in the middle of it, you're saying, God, help me. I'm swimming and I'm, I'm basically, I'm sinking. I don't know what to do. And I'm getting way, 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 way off of my notes. But in the middle of all of that, I just hear God looking at somebody right now saying, my economy is far greater than your 401k. My economy is far greater. And because you've kept giving and because you've kept sacrificing and because you've never left hope, then watch what I can do. Somebody, would you lift your hands right now and would you just give God great praise for a moment? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, I love you. Lord, I praise you. Lord, I magnify you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, you can't out-give God. I don't have all the time. I, I kind of got way past my notes. But let me just take you here. If you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation so that hopefully I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining it. But I want to leave you with about five points real quick that we could, that we could do. First, or rather, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in the New Living Translation, the, the history is this. The history of what you're about to read is you don't read much about Jerusalem uh, after you get, you know, kind of past the book of Acts. Jerusalem was under intense persecution by the Roman government. That's why there was revival happening in Macedonia and revival was happening up in, in Italy and revival was happening over here in, in, in these areas. But Jerusalem was under incredible persecution and so Paul and Peter and, and some of them, they've said, you know what, we've got to take up an offering. We're going to get all these new churches that God is building and we're going to give some money to Jerusalem that are in crazy persecution. And so this is talking about that offering that Paul was going to receive for Jerusalem. Again, I'm reading the New Living Translation simply because I don't have time to explain it. So I want you, I don't want to have to use big words. Like, for example, if we read it in the in the King James Version in the first in the first verse, you would see the word superfluous. I can't even pronounce it, much less know what it means. Yeah, that word too. I don't know. I don't use that. That's one of them fancy words that I don't even realize what it means. So for poor folk, quit laughing at me. It hurts my feelings. I'm tender. I'm, I'm, I'm. I know you love me, Sister Buford. I hope so. It's all right. I'm, just give me a moment. Let me get back to it. Sir Fluffalus. <laughs> Paul said, I really don't need to write about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. I know how eager you are to help, and I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. And I'm sending these brothers to be sure you're really ready. I've been telling them, and I, I need that money to be collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed not to mention your own embarrassment if... Some of the Macedonian believers would come with us and found, find that you're not really ready to give all that I told them. So I thought I'd send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promise is ready. But I, I don't want to beg you. I want it to be a willing gift, not one to be given grudgingly. And this is where the truth begins to unfurl. Remember this. 
A farmer that plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And each of you must decide in your heart how much to give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all that you need. And then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share. As the scriptures have said, they that share freely and give generously to the poor, their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides the seed to the farmer and the bread to eat. And in the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then will produce a great harvest of generosity in you. And you will be enriched in every way that you can always be generous. And when we take those gifts to those that need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result in the ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you're obedient to the gospel of Christ and they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace that God has given you. Thank God for this gift to wonderful for words. Would you give me just a brief moment to bring this all home? There's, there's, I think, five things, five encouragements that happen. Those of you that have sacrificed all of your life, those of you this year that have stretched beyond your capabilities and you've given it and it hurts sometimes to give, let me show you there's five things. Number one, your giving will provoke others. Now normally we don't talk about this. In fact, I spent a whole sermon this morning talking about the unsung heroes that don't make a big deal and aren't there. And I know we're not competing with who can preach the best sermon and who can sing the best song. But Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says we ought to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We talk about peer pressure and peer pressure is usually used in a negative term. But I'm convinced that giving and sacrifice ought to be some peer pressure that goes on. There's something about it. When I see others that are willing to give of themselves, it causes me to want to give of myself. When others begin to say, I'm going to work for the kingdom of God, it causes me to work on him. And there, and, and I'm telling you, it, it is the zeal of the Corinthians that challenged the Macedonians. And now the Macedonians are relighting a fire under the Corinthians. Can I just tell you right now, your giving doesn't go unnoticed. Your sacrifice doesn't go unnoticed. What we have as a church have been able to do is because people have gotten together and it has considered, it provoked unto love and to good works. Your giving will spark something in somebody else. Number two, your giving will bless you. The Lord promised and it still holds true today in the book of Luke chapter 6. Give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, good measure, and it will run over. It's not necessarily going to be money. It's not necessarily going to be material goods. But I promise what God gives in return is always far greater than what you gave in the first place. Listen to me. Giving is not something you do. Giving and sacrifice ought to be who you are. So... The world doesn't understand it. Proverbs, the, uh, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 11 verse 24. There is that that scattereth and yet it increaseth. And there are those that withholdeth more than is meat, but it, lend, it tendeth to poverty. The world says how in the world can you give more and get more? 
Wouldn't it make sense that you don't give? Wouldn't it make sense that you don't sacrifice? You'll have more time, you'll have more money. Wouldn't it make sense? But God's economy says the more you give, the more you sacrifice, the more you get in return. The principle is simple. Let me show you three things uh, of this principle. First off, it's the principle of increase. You reap in measure what you sow. Now, maybe you and I, were not agriculturally uh, proficient, but you see it operating. The farmer who plants a lot of seed has a better chance for a greater harvest. A farmer that says, I'm going to plant a little seed, their harvest is smaller. The investor that invests more money will most likely get a larger return than someone that invests a little bit. The more you invest in the work of the Lord, the more fruit God allows you and I to see. And can I tell you right now that whenever you tend to forget that principle, remind yourself that God gave everything. Romans 8.32, He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not be with Him that freely gives us those things? You reap what you sow. If you won't increase, and I'm not talking about being a millionaire and putting a BMW in your driveway. But if you want the blessings of God, then live a life of sacrifice. Can I tell you that that's far more than what you put in that offering plate? When you come to church and you lift up those hands and you don't feel like worshiping him, but you lift him up anyway. And when your day has been a living hell, you still lift your hands and say, Jesus, I love you. And Jesus, I magnify you. When the tears threaten to spring unbidden to your face, you throw up those hands and you say, blessed is the name of the Lord. And when you do that, you begin to sow a bountiful seed and there is a harvest that is coming. Not only is it the principle of increase, but it's the principle of intent. You reap if you sow with the right motives. Now, I know that in the natural world, that may make no sense. The farmer, whether he likes the seed or not, or whether he wants to get a harvest or not, he can throw that seed out there, and he can cuss as he's throwing the seed. And as long as it rains and the sun shines, I promise you something's going to grow. It doesn't matter what he plans to use the money he earns for, but that's the natural world. But the motive in your sacrifice is vitally important. Your giving must come from the heart, and the motive in the heart must please God. I read this, and I liked what it said. We ought not be sad givers, those that give because we have to. We ought not be mad givers. We give because we we have to out of necessity. But God said we ought to be glad givers who say, I'm giving the worship. I'm giving the offering. I'm giving the praise because I've been blessed with grace and that more abundantly. And that's why the book of Proverbs that says, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed. And then it's the principle. This is what separates God's economy from anything else in the world. It's the principle of immediacy. You reap even while you sow. How many of you planted some sort of a garden this year? You planted it and for two months you watered it and you made sure those stupid caterpillars that like to eat my tomatoes you picked them off and you flicked them out or you fed them to the birds and you weeded it and you picked the suckers off the vines and nothing happened and if you're like me who got a really late start 
about the time that you start seeing that first tomato, they start saying, well, I'm done because it's already September and, you know, you're not supposed to get tomatoes in September and so my plants are already giving up the ghost. I got two tomatoes, whoopee-doo. I could have bought them stupid tomatoes for way less than what I spent putting that little garden in, aggravating. Finally got three cucumbers and then all the leaves turned brown and fell off. Spent a good amount of money on a heirloom tomato plant, one of them purple tomatoes. It was supposed to be cool. It's this tall. Has 14,000 blooms. And right about the time they get to where they're tomato, they fall off. Dumb plant. I'm so glad that's not how God works. I know there's long-range benefits to giving to God. But what I like is that once you start sharing God's abundant grace, things begin to happen. Let me read to you. Let, let me get back to the fancy language in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Did you catch all that? The universals in that verse blow my mind. All grace, always, all sufficiency, every good work, and it happens the moment you begin to give. It's immediate. It doesn't mean that God will make every Christian wealthy beyond their imagination, but it means that the Christian, and I'm going to read a, ver, a, 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 a sentence I read, the Christian who provides grace giving will always have what he needs when he needs it. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. I've never given to God. I've never given of my time, my talents, and my treasures that I needed that somewhere down the road. And God didn't say, when you need it, he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. That word sufficient means, he says, all sufficiency. Now, I'm not opposed to doctors. I'm not opposed to counselors. I'm not opposed to that. But can I just let someone know this? Would you stop depending on others? And would you turn to the Lord? And if you have given unto him, he said, I will not leave you hanging. You can depend on him. You can grab a hold on him. It may take you three long years, but the church is going to be okay. It may take you three long years to figure out how it's all going to come out. But just ask Pastor Joel Mitchell. He'll tell you the wait was worth it all. God never let them down. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. The third thing is your grace will meet your needs. There's a new words that you see here. It says service. Paul lifted up that giving. Paul lifted up that offering. And he did it to the highest level. He said that your giving, your sacrifice, and he used that word on purpose, your sacrifice. It's the same thing that they used to do in the Old Testament when they would bring that lamb. And they would carry that lamb that they had faithfully nursed and made sure there was no scratch or blemish. And they would bring that lamb and they would give it to the, 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 the priest and he would sacrifice it. It had to hurt them a little bit. But he said, when you give, it's that service, it's that sacrifice to the Lord. And your sacrifice, someone said it this way, giving and grace, it never looks for a reason. It only looks for an opportunity. 
Which is why in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. He said, and we're not the ones that get the glory. Whatever you gave tonight, it's not going, they're, they're not, you're not going to get a card that says, thank you for your She's for Christ offering, but you're going to see someone say, we took a She's for Christ offering in a vehicle and we took it out to somewhere, and, and I want you to see what God is doing Someone's going to say there was a church built in a day and it was because of people's giving to She's for Christ and look what God is doing. We may never get the credit, but what you have done glorifies God. Paul uses the word abundance. He opened the letter in Corinthians with the word abundant suffering. But later on he tells you that it matches with abundant comfort. And then he tells you it's God's abundant grace that allows you to have abundant good works. If you'll learn to give, your life will be that of abundance. Your giving is going to glorify God. We, we see that. The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And then the last thing, and I love this part, the last thing is your giving will unite the people of God. In this 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, it was Jewish churches and it was Gentile churches that gathered together and gave a sacrifice and it brought them together and Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 says we are all one in Christ Jesus another person wrote it this way when a Christian practices grace giving that's just a fancy word for, for sacrifice when a Christian practices grace giving his money is not a substitute for his concern or his service. You first have to give yourself to the Lord, and then you give what you have. You cannot separate the gift and the giver when you give motivated by the grace of God. Hallelujah. I want us to stand today. You can't outgive.